I think most of us would not want to admit that we hate someone, right? I mean, it's a really ugly word, and we would rather say, I dislike someone or I struggle with someone. But to admit hate seems like, wow, it's a slam on our character. And so we don't talk about it. But yet, my guess is, if we are totally candid with ourselves and with other people, we could look back on our lives and see a time when we were really wounded by something that someone said, something that someone did to us, maybe to someone we love, maybe because the way they acted in our culture, and, and it would be easy to say, and I really hate that person. And maybe I just sort of want harm to come to them. I don't want to be the one to do it, but man, I wouldn't be sad if something bad happened to that person. Hate is really strong, really ugly, and yet it can be part of our lives. In fact, sometimes there can be a fine line between love and hate. Because the people that we love, we have the strongest emotion for, and maybe we feel their strong emotions as well. When something negative happens, man, love can be flipped to hate in really simple and easy ways, and it is destructive. So what do we do about that? I mean, I think most of us know that hate should not be part of our lives, and we would agree with what Martin Luther King Jr. said when he said this, it's wrong to hate. It's always been wrong to hate, and it will always be wrong to hate. It's wrong in America, it's wrong in Germany, it's wrong in Russia, it's wrong in China, it was wrong in 2000 B.C., and it's wrong in 1954 A.D. It's always been wrong, and it always will be wrong. We know that hate is wrong, but what do we do with it? This month, I want us to think about that. I want us to spend four weeks thinking about how we overcome the power of hate, which really can be at work in our hearts with love. How do we do that? And one of the ways we do it is identify how hate gets started. And so it's where we're going to begin. Today I want us to think about the powerful force of anger at work in our lives and how anger can certainly lead us to hate. I mean, when we get hurt, just like with hate, when we get hurt or someone we love gets hurt, we get angry. And anger is a powerful, strong motivator. Emotionally, intellectually, physically, we respond when we're angry. And anger can cause us to do stuff that we normally wouldn't do. I mean, the way that we talk can change. Even the words that we say can change. Our tone changes dramatically. What we do changes dramatically. And we can say and do things that looking back, we really, really regret. But anger is so strong, so powerful, we act in our anger. And so often, if we're not careful, our anger is directed toward people who don't deserve it, right? We get angry in one setting and can't show it, so other people in our lives feel our anger. Like, we deal with something at work, and we are really angry with someone because of the way they're doing their job or the way they're treating us, and we can't respond because that would be unprofessional, so who catches the anger? Our spouse, our kids, our parents people we love. They didn't do anything, but they get the anger and it's misdirected. Now, oftentimes we don't really need to show our anger to the person who is causing it necessarily, but when we show it to other people, that can really be so destructive. So how do we steer our anger, which can certainly lead us to hate other people, how do we steer that anger into love? 
Well, the good news is Scripture talks about it and talks about it several times. It is clear that anger is a powerful emotion. We see that at work in Scripture, both in in passages that talk about anger, but also in stories where people get angry. And so what does Scripture teach us about overcoming anger so that it doesn't turn into hate? That's what I want us to think about today. And to get at that, I want us to turn to some teaching of Jesus that we, have, we find it in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a, a long section of teaching that we have recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Jesus speaks, and this is a large group. It's not like just the 12 that we see sometimes, but a larger group. They're gathered on the Mount. That's what we call it, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking about, okay, what does it look like to be my disciple? And part of what Jesus says is, there's a cost. Some people are going to pay a price for being my disciple. It won't always be easy. And then Jesus lays out, okay, what does your heart look like if you're a follower of Jesus? And that's the section I want us to turn to today. Because what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 is look back on the Old Testament, okay, hundreds of years before, and say, you know what the Old Testament says? Now let me explain how that works out into being my follower, okay? So he says it this way in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You've heard that it was said, and each one of these sections begins with that language. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, to ancient followers, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, the people who were listening to Jesus were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew, a Jewish rabbi, and this was much the way that Jewish rabbis taught in the first century. Here's a passage of Scripture. Let me explain it, sort of like what we do today. And so Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Well, they're all like, yeah, we know that one. Okay, that's in the Ten Commandments. It's number six. King James Version says, thou shalt not kill. Well, this murder word is really more like what that means because the Old Testament law was really clear about military service, about self-defense, but murder is something different. When one person intentionally kills another person, all right, that's what we're talking about here. Jesus says, you know, the law says, God was clear, you can't murder someone, and there's a price to be paid. And if you read through the Old Testament, it is very clear about the price to be paid for murder. It's capital punishment. So Jesus lays that out, but for them, they're all like, yep, we know that. Judaism 101, we're all real clear on that. But then Jesus goes on, verse 22, but I tell you, and he doesn't deny what the first part says, he just adds to it, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now my guess is the people who heard Jesus say these words, and maybe even us today are going, hang on here, Jesus. Now, we get the whole, you shall not murder. We all agree murder's bad, all right? We're clear on that. That makes good sense. And we understand why God would be against that. God created us all. He made us. He loves us. He doesn't want to see any of us killed. But you're saying, don't get angry. And if you call somebody a name, you should have to be tried in a court of law and found guilty and face punishment. I mean, just because you say, you fool, Because you say raka, what is raka? Raka means empty. 
basically means your head is empty. Like if you're watching Elf, cotton-headed ninny muggins, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. You can't even think straight is what those two words mean. It's really saying you're less than. You're not good enough for my time. You're so stupid, I'm not even going to have a conversation with you. That's what it is. Now, we get why that's not a very nice thing to say. But for Jesus to say, if you get angry and start calling people names like this, you should be hauled into court, we don't really understand. So what is Jesus saying? My guess is he's using a little bit of an exaggeration here, but his point is, well, when you do that, It's not murder. No, it's not the physical act of murder. But here's the thing. When we physically murder someone, when someone is killed by another person, we are robbing them of life. And life is given by God. It is part of what it means to be human. And when we get angry and start calling people names, what we're ending up doing is saying you are sub- human. You are not good enough to be a real human being, and we too are robbing them of their humanity. Okay? We're saying they're not as good as us. And we are leading down the path of hatred that takes us to murder. And so part of what Jesus is getting at is, I don't want you to murder someone, okay? That's wrong. But what leads to murder is anger and hatred. And if you can back off that, you're never going to have to worry about murdering someone because you're not going to get to that point. But he takes it a step further. Verse 23, he says, Our relationships are this important. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come, and offer your gift. Now, we've got to think about this. When we think this, we say, oh, I went to church on Sunday, and I remembered when I was about to drop a check in the basket out there that I had a problem. Well, I guess I should go deal with that problem and then make our offering. But it was really a little more complicated than that because the temple is in Jerusalem. That's where the altar is. And if you're a Jew in the ancient world, you have to make a few trips there and make some offerings, some sacrifices at the temple at the, offer, at the altar. But what they would have to think is, okay, Jesus is living in Galilee. Many of his followers are Galileans. And that means when you make an offering in Jerusalem, you got to walk three days from Galilee to Judea, where Jerusalem is located. Go to the temple, purchase your sacrifice, get to the altar, stand in line, and finally you make that sacrifice. And they're thinking, you mean i got to do all that, get to the altar and go, oh, yeah. I got that problem with this guy in my little town in Galilee. We had a business dealing that went sort of south, and he's angry with me, and I'm angry with him, and we've called each other a few names, and I guess I got to get out of line, walk three days back to Galilee, solve that problem, walk three days again to Jerusalem, get a sacrifice, get in line, and make that sacrifice. Again, my guess is Jesus is using an exaggeration. To say God is more concerned about your heart 
than he is anything else. And certainly God expects our obedience, right? He, he wants to be sure that we don't murder someone. And there are other commands listed here. Don't commit adultery. All sorts of things in chapter 5 of Matthew. Don't do this. But then Jesus backs up and says, where's your heart? Okay, God expects our obedience, but God wants more than just our outward actions. God wants what's on the inside. God wants all of you. Not just what other people see. He wants what, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. In fact, this goes way back. It's not just Jesus that says this. We could go back to the book of Hosea. Hundreds of years before Jesus, this prophet is speaking, and he's speaking for God, and he says these words in verse 6 of chapter 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, God wanted their sacrifices. The law was clear about what you did, when you did it, all the things that were required. But God wants more than that. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Where was their heart? It's not just about some outward form of doing something that God says. And it's not just about staying away from some stuff God said don't do. It's about following God with everything we are. And in this setting, what that means is overcoming the anger and hatred that lead to the outward act of murder. And so if we look at what Jesus is teaching, I would say it's basically this. Control your anger before your anger controls you. And certainly our anger really can control us, right? It can take over. It can dictate our words and our actions. It can be destructive. It can lead us to hate. And Jesus says, don't get to that point. Control your anger before your anger controls you. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think there's four questions we need to ask ourselves when we're dealing with anger that can help us get it under control. And the first question is this, okay? Why am I angry? What is causing this anger? Have you ever had one of those days when you're just like mad at the world? Like it doesn't matter what happens, you're going to be mad that it happened. Good things can happen, you're still mad about it. You're mad at everybody, everything. It's just miserable. I've had days like that. It's not fun for me. It's not fun for the people around me, right? Sometimes that's caused because we didn't sleep good the night before. Or we didn't have time for breakfast. Or there's something just going wrong. But more often than not, when I feel that way, I need to pay attention because I need to ask this question. What is causing this anger? Why am I so angry? Because a lot of times what's happened is something has bugged me, bothered me, made me angry. And what I've done is I've just sort of pushed it down because I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to feel angry, so I just decided I'm not angry. And I put it away and hope it goes away. But the problem is it didn't. And what's been happening is it's bubbling under the surface and the pressure is building up and it's about to blow. And so I'm just sort of angry all the time. And for that anger to be dealt with, I'm going to have to identify what caused this anger. Now, a lot of times when we're angry, we know. We know exactly what it is. It's very clear to us. But at other times, we might have to examine and say, okay, what's going on here? Why do I feel this way? What's causing my anger? 
What's the tension between me and this other person or group of people? What have they done? What have I done? What's happening here? And we identify the anger, then we can deal with it. And that leads us to the other questions. The second one is, how am I responsible? Now, our first answer to that question is usually, I'm not. It's all their fault, his fault, her fault. Okay? It's what they did that made me angry. So I'm not responsible. But then we step back and we have to think a little bit and maybe we might have to say, yeah, well, I helped create some of the tension. I made it worse. I haven't dealt with it. In fact, I may be more responsible than the other person. Now, sometimes it's just true that someone does something sort of out of the blue and it makes us angry and quite honestly, it's their fault. Okay, that happens. But sometimes when we examine what's happened and how we feel, we have to take some ownership too. We don't really want to. It's not fun. It's not too fun to admit we were wrong. It's not fun to admit that, yeah, this thing that I've been so upset about and felt so righteous about is partly my fault too. But it allows us to begin to heal from the anger. It begins to let us say, okay, I, I can be angry, but, but I've got some responsibility in this too that I need to deal with. Third question, can this relationship be saved? Now, this is an important question. Because there are times in life when trust has been so dramatically broken because someone has done something so heinous, there is no way for the relationship to be healed. That happens. More often, we can say, you know what? They've done something wrong. I've responded in a poor way. This relationship can at least be repaired. Now, it may have started out up here. This relationship was at the core of our lives. Something happened, and it's falling apart. And, and if I go to that person, or if they come to me, we talk it through. We find a way to deal with what's going on, to, to overcome the anger and maybe the hatred that's even developed. We can restore the relationship. That's the goal, right? We'd like to restore the relationship. Make it what it was. Maybe make it even better. Sometimes it's just to repair We'll never be back where we were. It's always going to be something different, but we can repair this relationship so that it's still there, okay? We have to decide, okay, can I save it? Maybe not, but if I can, am I going to restore it, repair it? What's going to take place? Last question. What can I do? What can I do to bring healing? Part of what we want to say is, well, they should come talk to me because they're the ones who started this thing. They need to come apologize to me. Then there can be healing. Well, that's probably true, but it might never happen. So what can I do? What can I do, even if I'm not at fault? What can I do to begin the process of healing that leads to restoration? that overcomes the anger which could lead to hatred. What can I do to make this better? And again, it's this process of developing responsibility in the relationship. Control your anger before your anger controls you. And I think those four questions help us do it. Now, 
Now, there's going to be stuff in life that happens that's going to make us angry. The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with it in that moment? We can allow it to fester, to become hatred, to overcome us. Or instead, we can invite God's love to be at work in us so that the anger doesn't take control and doesn't lead to hate. Which path is better? Let's pray together. God, we're thankful that you love us and that we spend our lives reflecting your love, but we know there are times when we really struggle with that. When our anger controls us. God, we pray that you'll help us in those moments to take a step back and reflect and think about how love can overcome this kind of anger so that it doesn't control us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue to worship.